Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through his word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. Good morning, church. How are you this morning? You know, that song jacked me up, messed me up, man. This is the air I breathe. That song was written in 2002, and uh, it was written in the month that I met Jesus for the very first time. And uh, I had a flashback as I was just singing of me at 16 years old. And uh, the church I got born again in and met Christ in, um, we had uh, trailers for our classrooms because of our spacing. And uh, we would meet in a trailer for our youth ministry. And I remember on Wednesday nights, um, I had known Jesus about two or three weeks. They gave us little plastic cups, little styrofoam cups. And they told us to ask God to fill our cup. And I remember still very vividly singing, this is the air I breathe with my cup. I never lost that cup, actually. I kept that cup and took it home. And, and every future Wednesday, I would bring that cup. I think probably people made fun of me. But let me, let me tell you, what I did not know how to do is I did not know how to speak to people at that time. But boy, I had hunker. The greatest gift God can give you as a human is hunger for Him. There is no greater gift. There's nothing God could give you greater than a desire and desperation for His presence. If that's your heart's cry this morning, might you... Lift your palms, face up to the Lord, and ask Him to fill you with that hunger, with that desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for thou shall be filled. We will be filled, Jesus, as we hunger and we thirst for your presence. And we tell you, Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, keep us from just singing songs on a screen. But Lord, let this be our heart's cry, that we are lost without you. That, Lord, our talents and our abilities only take us so far. And yet, God, your competency, your sufficiency, God, is what makes the difference. I pray, anoint your church in this hour, we pray. I pray, God, give us more hunger. Grant unto us a gift of grace, the gift of hunger, the gift of contrition, the gift of brokenness that we, O oh God, might be found in you, that we might search after you and seek you with all of our heart. And your word says, you shall be found. We praise, praise you, Lord, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And everybody said, amen. Mark chapter 4, if you have a Bible today, if you didn't receive a message card upon your entrance, you can raise your hand. One of our ushers there, Casey, would love to serve you in the back. And uh, Mark chapter 4 is our text for today. We are in week 3 of a series called On the Water. On the Water. Obviously, the water and the water sports are very popular at this time of the year, right? June is a is a hot month, and it has certainly been hot over the last 24 or 48 hours. Although this week, uh, that dry air and those cooler temperatures were amazing for this fall lover right here. Um, but it has uh, returned to summer over the last uh, few days. And uh, I want to draw your attention right quick to the back of this card, and you'll see under section grow of our strategy, something we're going to do in the month of July that's brand new. We're going to do two nights, July and August, a conversation about faith. I'm going to lead the first month. Pastor Chad will do the second month. It'll be two hours given to talking about understanding the violence of the Old Testament, God and violence. How do we reconcile? 
These are meant to be conversations in which you can invite friends. They will be very dialogue-based, so there'll be presentation, then all kinds of questions and answers. And these are going to take place on Thursday nights in July and August. And I just want to point your attention to that as you got plenty of weeks to prepare and maybe talk to individuals that are in your workplace that are interested in the Christian faith or certainly wondering what God would speak to the issues that we see in our day and age. And so we're going to talk about those issues over the next few months. Mark chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 35 today. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. This is... God's word. When evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Let us go across. He, he communicates. We want to cross over from this place of the Galilee or this place of Capernaum to the other side because Jesus, might I add, had a divine appointment to get to. He was going to deliver and exorcise demons out of a man. A man of whom called himself Legion because he was many. He had many different demons and he would cast them into a herd of swine as they would fall off the cliff to their destruction. But I think it's very interesting when you read this text of what we are introduced to. We come to today what I consider one of the most underrated miracles of Jesus' ministry. You say, Craig, why are you saying it's underrated? I say it's underrated because it reveals, I think, an essential element in our relationship with Jesus that most people overlook. And that is the fear of Jesus. I was going to entitle this message, Why You Should Be Afraid of Jesus. But this is often uh, an overlooked element of our relationship. And I know that sounds strange sometimes at the outset because we think of Jesus as supposed to be a meek and mild, you know, tossing children up into the air, petting lambs and looking pensively off into the sunset, his permed hair blowing in the wind, you know, with, you know, little sheep on his back. And yes, listen, the tenderness of Jesus is amazing. It is incomprehensible. We've talked about that a lot. But this weekend, we're going to see a different side of Jesus. Not the tender, meek and mild, but something altogether different. One just as important, by the way, for you to have in your relationship with him. In fact, without the fear of Jesus, I would propose you won't find his tenderness precious or comforting. His tenderness becomes comforting when I understand his majesty and his power. His fear, right? His all-inspiring reality. Many people today, they assume a God who should be feared would be guilty of some kind of faults. That the fear of God is some kind of leftover relic from some oppressive, you know, archaic view of religion. But at any time you're in the presence of greatness, church, you feel a sense of fear. I've told you the story before where I achieved my lifelong dream of meeting Michael Jordan. I've told you this story before. I was six years old. And uh, when, when Jordan in 1991 won his first um, NBA finals, right? I think they won four to one in that one against the Lakers. And it was... Um, it was uh, Magic's last year and Jordan's first year to win the NBA Finals. From that point on, Air Jordan became my hero, right? I, up to that point on the elementary playground at recess, I had the Reeboks that had the little, uh, the little basketball on the tongue and you pumped it up. You know what I'm talking about, the old pump-ups? But, but, uh, but that point forward, it was all Air Jordan, right? And Air Jordan was my role model. I wanted to be like Mike. And I was convinced, even as a 
you know, a, a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old that if I worked hard enough, I could dunk like him. So my friends and I, we lowered our goals down to about six feet, and we spent hours, endless hours, perfecting our split-leg, tongue-extended dunks, you know what I'm saying, yamming on those goals while listening on our jukebox to Whitney Houston's One Moment in Time. Okay, And it was full volume, by the way, at that time. And those dunks, I tell you, they felt so right. But my God, when I went back and looked at the VHS, because you had these big things you had to set up on tripods, when I went back and looked at the VHS, I looked more like a wounded duck dying on a pond than I did some kind of Air Jordan, right? I mean, it was, it was uh, a sight to be imagined. Well, you can imagine how excited I was in 1994 when I was nine years old. I found out that the great MJ was going to, take a year to play for the Birmingham Barons, Chicago White Sox, basketball. He was hanging up a jersey and putting on baseball pants. And he came to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where I live, to Ingle Stadium, historic Ingle Stadium. And the Barons were going to play the Chattanooga Lookout. So my friend and I, we get up really early in the morning, as early as we can, and we have one mission that day. We're going to touch his skin, okay? I don't care what I did. I don't know if I rubbed his arm, rubbed his hand, licked his foot. I don't care. It would have been an awesome story either way. So here I was standing on the third base side, and he's out in the outfield warming up. You know, he's throwing pitches, and we are screaming bloody murder, like, Jordan, you know, like, come over here. And finally, hour after hour, he comes over, and he just gently you know, slaps our hands and says, hello. And I turned around and screamed to the crowd, I had a conversation with MJ, you know. We talked, you know, we had, we had great moments. Did you know that joker didn't get into one single inning or out of that whole game? He went into the dugout never to be seen again. I mean, the place was packed out for MJ, right? 1994 was a great day for all the managers of AA baseball in the Southeast, right? I mean, they were packing out stadiums because of MJ's presence. Now listen to me. When I think about that story, the presence of greatness has this strange effect on us. When we encounter it, we, we feel, if you will, a curious mixture of both desire and terror. We don't know whether to draw close Or to turn and run away as fast as we can. Here's the question. If we in the presence of human greatness feel that way. What's it like to be in the presence of infinite greatness? What's it like? If if I was that starstruck in the presence of someone whose glory consisted of the fact that he can jump 36 inches higher than the average man, what's it like to find yourself in the presence of the one who literally spoke the universe into existence? Have you ever thought about how big and how amazing, how powerful God is? A couple summers ago, we were out on the African bush Uh, Several of those in this room were on the African bush with us. And and there in the African bush, it was amazing. We were amazed at how many more stars you could see at night. You know, the, the nearest light was hundreds of miles away. There was no light pollution. And it looked like you could see millions of stars. Now, of course, astronomers say that on the clearest night, the human naked eye can only see 9,096 stars. So if you saw every one with your eye, it's 9,096. But I would tell you, it looked like a million stars. Astronomers say that there are 3,000 billion trillion stars. That's a three with 24 zeros. That's how many stars there are. And what's more important than that is that Isaiah says that he, God, knows the name of every single one of them. He knows all of them. I sometimes forget the names of people whose wedding ceremony I'm going to do. You know what I'm saying? 
And he is like, hey, there's Pegasus. Hey, there's Bob. There's uh, T314159er. You know, like, I don't know what he says, but he looks at all of the stars. And each of those 3,000 billion trillion stars puts out the same energy as 500,000 megaton megaton bombs every single second. And God created it all with just a word. All with just a statement. How do you think we're supposed to feel in the presence of that kind of God? How do we, as humans, approach that kind of God? Mark chapter 4 verse 35 begins the record of this miracle of Jesus with a two-fold time reference. It says, on that day when evening had come. You hear that? These statements connect the beginning of the chapter to the end of the chapter. Jesus, let me tell us, has spent the day teaching and preaching and explaining the parables of the kingdom of God. He and his disciples are now ready to cross over the Sea of Galilee. Two reasons. One, he wanted some rest. Number two, he had an appointment on the other side. The region of the Gerasenes, the Gentile territory, was where he was going to set a demon-possessed man free. Now, their departure from one side of Galilee to the next, it marks a transition in Mark's gospel from the focus on the infinite wisdom of Jesus' teachings to the sovereign authority of Jesus' miracles. We don't see the sovereign authority of his miracles until we understand the inspired teachings of his words. Mark chapter 5, Jesus, once he gets to the other side, will cast out a man or cast out a legion of demons. He will heal another individual and he will literally raise a girl from the dead. But it all begins in our text where Jesus calms the raging storm. And it ends, this miracle, with the disciples questioning the identity of Jesus. After Jesus being asleep in the stern of the boat is woken... And brought to the deck of the boat to calm the wind and the waves. After that happens, the disciples are now contemplating or considering the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, there's two answers. Jesus is, number one, a human being. He's a human being. He was tired. He had a cushion. He had a pillow. And he went to sleep. That's what humans do. When humans get tired, they sleep. In fact, the text says that he was so exhausted, he would have kept on sleeping all the way through the tempest. All the way through the, 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 the horrible, horrid, raging storm. But the disciples woke him up. But on the other hand, not only is Jesus a human being, he is the living God. He is the living God. When they woke him, he walked to the deck of the boat, and when he spoke to the wind and the waves... These unruly elements obeyed his voice. Mark it down, y'all. This story is about Jesus. Whether or not you've heard it preached this way, it's not about storms. It's not about someone's indifference. It's not about the disciples. This story is about Jesus. Jesus. Mark wants us to Consider who Jesus is. And by way of application, can I just say real quick, the text is not about whether or not there is a storm in your life. The text is whether Jesus is in the boat with you. It's not whether or not you're going to face unruly elements. It's, is Jesus in the boat? Amy Carmichael wrote, 
Thou art the Lord who slept on a pillow. Thou art the Lord who soothes the furious sea. What matters, you ask, the blowing wind and howling billow, if only we are on the boat with thee. If only we're on the boat with you, Jesus. I've got a question for you today. Are you on the boat with Jesus? Y'all are real, real quiet. Y'all going to help me preach today. Are you on the boat with Jesus? Have you heeded the Lord's call to journey with him to the other side? Is Jesus truly your Lord and Savior? If not, today you need to run to the cross. But if so, don't run away. So the good news today is Jesus can be trusted even when the storms are raging. He can be trusted. Now watch this. When evening had come, he said to them, let us go across the other side. He was talking about the other side of the Sea of Galilee. On the other side was Gentile territory. They could have taken the land route, but he said, I want the water route. Water route. That's an important detail we're going to talk about in a minute. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat just as he was. Watch this. And the other boats were with him. Pause. Leave that up for a moment. The other boats were with him. Although this is... Kind of off topic, I need to follow it just for a moment. There's a little textual thing here that we, we encounter that I think makes a point. Because oftentimes we hear an objection that I hear people making more and more in our culture. And I hear this more and more and more. And people make this claim about the Bible, that the Bible is just a collection of legends. It's a collection of legends. And this idea has been popularized by things like, um, like the Da Vinci Code. Or like a popular atheist in our time like Bart Ehrman. And the basic gist of the theory goes like this. The first disciples, they saw Jesus as a prophet with a special connection to God who did some really great things. And over time, those stories got stretched to include Jesus' divinity because that made the stories more powerful. Something like Jesus prayed for someone one day to get better and they did. And so that turned into he healed them. And this is what atheists say today. Because again, they can't, they can't answer the second question I'll give to you in a minute. So... So, or Jesus says, I really hope there's good weather tomorrow for the picnic. And that turns out over a period of 100 years that he controls the weather. Or the original disciples thought that Jesus was a voice from God. And later generations wrote down that Jesus was claiming to be the son of God. Now the reason that theory has become so popular is because people realize that the idea that the disciples just made these stories up as direct lies is totally unlikely. Why? Because it's hard to establish a motive for why they would lie. They know they can't make them up altogether because when someone lies, it's because their life usually gets something. They get money. When they lie, they're trying to stay out of trouble. When they lie, they try to get power. But these lies did not gain the disciples power. It gained them poverty. It did not gain them money. It gave them more poverty. It did not gain them more life. It gained them death and many of them being killed. So you say, what, what would be the motive of the disciples? So this new theory that atheists say, it suggests that, that they didn't grossly lie. They, the stories just got exaggerated over time. And by the time we were written down here, the legend is totally indistinguishable from the fact. Well, let me just tell you, there are several issues with that theory. Let me give you a couple problems with that theory. These stories don't read like legends. They don't read like legends. These stories explicitly claim to be eyewitnesses' accounts, and they read like eyewitnesses' accounts. Look at, look at that simple evidence, verse 35. And other boats were with him. What in the world does that got to do with anything? I mean, does that add to the story? 
That reads like an eyewitness account. That has nothing to do with the legends. If you hear a legend, I promise you, you won't hear the side peripheral detail of other boats being with him. No, what is that? That's just a guy recalling what he saw. That's just a guy recalling what he saw with his eyes and writing down with his hand. There are plenty of legends that exist in the first century and none of them read like this. So that's just a literary issue off the bat that these, this theory cannot be true. Verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already feeling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, y'all, this must have been some kind of storm. He's talking to some seasoned mariners. He's talking to some disciples who know the Sea of Galilee like the back of their hand. He's talking to some individuals who understand this sea, that have been in a lot of storms. Now, the Sea of Galilee was an area that was very prone to storms. The sea itself is 700 feet below sea level. When you leave Jerusalem and go down to the Sea of Galilee, you, you find very quickly people start falling asleep on the, 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 the bus because the bromine in the air gets so strong and, it, and it's, it's a natural sleep agent. And so you'll see as you're descending, but the mountains, watch this, around it rise to 9,200 feet above sea level. So you've got 700 feet below sea level. That, that is major warm moisture. And then you have high altitudes with cold air. You can imagine right there at the sea, you've got cold air and you've got warm air constantly interacting. You get some major types of storms. I've been there. Many of you have been there. Even today, if you go to the restaurants along the western side of the sea, which are always up on stilts about 10 or 15 feet high, it'll say, pay attention if a storm arrives. Why? Because you'll go out into the parking lot and the parking lot will be flooded within an hour before you even get done eating your food and your car will be floating into the water. Why? Because these storms can pop up like this. In fact, I've got a, a couple of pictures uh, that I want to show you when I was there at Capernaum. So this first picture you'll see is me. I got to preach on the Sea of Galilee. First time ever on the Sea of Galilee. Go to this next picture. This is me standing at Capernaum. Jesus would have landed his boat here time and time again. This is his hometown. Okay, this is where Jesus would have set off here. The far left is the region of the Gerasenes. Jesus would have crossed over the Sea of Galilee. I'll show you a quick video. Maybe they had that video. You got audio with it? Capernaum. Most of Jesus' ministry, of course, happens on these hills. Stop, uh, multiplication of 5,000. Feeding of 5,000. Multiplication of 5 loaves and 2 fish. Calling to the first disciples. This is where Jesus walked on water. You can stand there on the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and put your hands like this, and 99% of your Savior's life happened between your left hand and right hand. I mean, you, you can stand there like this. It's amazing, right? And this is a storm that just pops up instantly. It's one of those kind of storms. Well, Jesus, meanwhile, is, is tired from a tough day of ministry. He's got a pillow over his head trying to catch some sleep. Now, we know his sleep is intentional because he has a cushion. Y'all, when you got a cushion, you intend to sleep. You walk up in the church gathering with a neck pillow, I know you've already decided you ain't making it through my sermon. Okay? I know that. He was planning to sleep, but why is he intending to sleep if he knows a storm is coming? Now, surely if he controls the weather, he knows the weather. Surely he knows it's coming and he's planning to sleep through it. You say, you say what's going on? Y'all, this is all set up. This is all set up. So the disciples, in fear, they wake him up with the question, don't you care that we're perishing? They go to the bottom of the ship. 
Which has to be, by the way, one of the dumbest questions ever uttered. Do you care that we're dying? But do you ever feel like this? Come on, anybody ever felt like this in life? You care? Do you even care I'm about to die, Jesus? Do you even really exist? Are you even alive? You seem to be sleeping or indifferent. And Mark records this story because this is often how we feel. But I want you to see Jesus led the disciples into the sea to intentionally lead them into a storm. He intentionally led them into a storm. And they wake him up and they say, do you not care? Notice the matter of fact language here. They didn't say, hey, we in trouble, Jesus. Help us out. They didn't say, hey, things are a little uncomfortable. Things look bad out here on the deck. They said, we're about to die. You you understand what I'm saying here? Okay, it feels funny reading it, okay? It ain't funny if you're them, right? You're about to die. This ship is going over. Their their philosophy, watch this, is evidenced in how they address Jesus. Did you see it? They said, teacher. Woo! I love this preaching right here. They said, rabbi. They didn't say miracle worker. They said, teacher. Hey, Hey, rabbi. One who gives us some good words over there on the shore. The one who, who, who holds the words of eternal life. Let me put that in our vernacular. Rev. Rev. Do you care that we're perishing? At least seven of the disciples of the twelve were fishermen who knew the sea. Jesus was a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi. He's an upstart preacher who doesn't have much money. What does Jesus know about the sea? And moreover, what can Jesus do in a storm? And they concluded, y'all, like we conclude, that he can't do nothing. You see this, don't you, in the text? They, they, they concluded, will you not notice, notice, they don't ask Jesus to do anything. They don't ask Jesus to pray a prayer. They don't ask Jesus to read a Bible verse. They don't ask Jesus to calm the storm. They just ask Jesus, do you not care that we're dying? Why? Because they don't believe Jesus can do anything. Their question is not, Lord, will you help? Their question is, Lord, do you even care? They don't even ask him to help navigate through the storm. They said, Lord, we're about to die. We're about to die. Can you like... Wake up or something, you know? Can you read a verse? Can you pray a prayer, stretch your hand, do something? R.C. Sproul, he says here, he says, How like the creature to rebuke his creator. How like the servant to sass his master. Their question, y'all, is really a rebuke. It's a rebuke to the Son of God. Do you not care? Which betrays their unbelief. And in the storm, they feel like sleeping Jesus does not care. I want to warn you, friend, hear me very clearly. Do not doubt the steadfast love of Jesus when you're going through a storm. Don't do it. Don't doubt the steadfast love of God. See, the church, church, you got to see the issue of the text here. It's not the problem of divine indifference. It's the problem of human competence. You see this? It's not divine indifference, it's human competence. Jesus didn't sleep there because there's any lack of care or concern. I think, and I can't prove it and you can't disprove it from the text, so you better just follow right along. 
Okay? You can't disprove it. I can't prove it. You can't disprove it. So let's just go together. I think Jesus just says, you know what? <clears throat> I'm just going to lay right here a minute. Y'all ain't going to help me preach this morning. I- I'm just going to lay here a minute where... I'm going to lay here until these disciples that I've called get to a place where, where they recognize as a people they can't handle the storms of life that they're going through. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to lay back here and relax and keep my feet up. Why? Because sometimes when we go through storms, it seems like Jesus is sleeping in your storm. If you've never been there before, it's because you hadn't lived long enough. But it may be that he's not actually sleeping. He's just trying to get you to wake up. See, the title of today's message is, Who Really Got Woke? Woke is what we're talking about in culture today. You want to see somebody who really gets woke? Is it Jesus that gets woke? Or is it the disciples who get woke? You see, church, you can't trust in Jesus and trust in yourself at the same time. You can't do it. And sometimes the Lord just lays there until you've done everything you know to do, till you called everybody you know to call, till you worked every little minute you know how to work. He just lays there until you get to a place where you say, God, I have no other choice but to lift my hands to you and say, Lord, I trust thee. I trust thee, Lord. So Jesus is is laid back on the boat. He's He's just waiting for somebody to wake him up. He's waiting for somebody to realize human competency is not astute, not powerful enough to deal with unruly elements. See, question that we're asking when we came to church this morning is the wrong question. You came to church asking why is Jesus taking so long to fix it. That ain't the question that God's asking. The question that God's asking of you today is why are you taking so long to wake him up? Why are you taking so long to revive? To ask Jesus to step into the situation. Now it's amazing because... Verse 39 says, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. (laughs) Y'all are quiet, man. You are quiet today. I I came ready to preach. And, And it's amazing because when he says, peace, be still, he rebuked it. Now, rebuke is what you do to someone underneath you. An employee gets rebuked because they keep being late. You rebuke a child when they do wrong. No, sir, Knox, you will not talk back to your mom. No, ma'am, Marley, you will not give ugly faces to your parents. Right? Give you a little insight into the Mossgrove household. (laughs) Jesus stands up and rebukes the weather like it's nothing more than a rowdy child. By the way, do you know what it says? It says he went down into the billow with a cushion. How do you know he had a cushion unless you're there to see it? Told you these aren't legends. These are eyewitness accounts. Can't make this stuff up. The details are too peculiar. And here is Jesus. No incantations, no loud voices, no loud invectives, no loud chants, no expecto patronums or a magic wand. He just stands up and what does he do? He rebukes the wind. He rebukes the storm like a toddler. Now, here's something else. I just want to throw it in there. Be still in Greek is what they call a verb of continuing action. It's called an aorist tense verb that has continuing action, which means he was saying, be quiet, lay down, and stay there. <laughs> Jesus didn't say, Father, would you give me the power to calm this storm down? 
he stood up like a parent upset at a rowdy child. And he said, you sit down. You get your tail in the corner until I tell you you can come back out. That's what he said. You can't miss this from our Savior here. You can't miss this from his lips. This is what Jesus does. In other words, he put the storm in time out. You sit down, and I'll tell you when you can come out and play again. And the storm kind of slinks off, slinks over into the corner. And the wind sees, watch this, and there was a great calm. Y'all look, not only did the storm die down immediately, the waves died down. If you stop the wind immediately, it takes over an hour, they tell you, for the waves to die down. Jesus does it in one second. Storm waves, instant. Great calm. He has divine authority over the storms. He has divine authority over storms. Y'all picture this. There's a hurricane. I mean, this is a storm. The, sail, the sailboat is being rocked back and forth and water's filling up the boat. You think you'd be scared? Yeah. And seasoned mariners conclude, we are going to die. They go down into the stern where Jesus is sleeping on a pillow. Because the text says that. He's got a cushion. And they wake him up. And he stands up and he's trying to wipe the sleep out of his eyes. You, you see this story? I, I like to picture. And here he is, you know, trying to, you know what I'm talking about. You get woken up on an airplane when you're about to descend. And he's trying to, he's trying to wake up and he's wiping the sleep from his eyes. He's stumbling to the top and he, he gets up there and surveys the situation. And he says, peace, be still. And immediately, quiet. He literally said, be quiet, lay down. In the grammar, be quiet, lay down, and stay that way. And it obeyed his voice. Instantly. It obeyed his voice. Now notice what the text says. My favorite part of the story, he then turns to the disciples, verse 40, and he says, why are you so afraid? Y'all, why were we so afraid? Like, we thought we were going to die. I think I got reasonable cause. Like, if there's ever a time to fear in life, it's when you're about to die, right? And didn't God kind of give us those reflexes? And then you rebuke the storm like a rowdy toddler, and it listens, and you're asking us why we are afraid? And Jesus continues and says, have you still no faith? Now, watch this, watch this. Oh, I love this, watch this. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. They were filled with great fear, the scripture says, and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see that in your text? Great fear. See, when they were in the storm, they were sure they were going to die. They just felt plain old fear. You know the plain old fear like when you're about to die? You know what I'm talking about? Just so plain old fear like when you're about to die and your life's about to be no more. But after Jesus rescued them, they had great fear. In other words, the rescue scared them more than the storm. Are you with me? Seeing Jesus' power over the storm was more terrifying than thinking they were going to die in the storm. It was more terrifying to see Jesus speak to a storm than it was for them to have plain old regular fear like I'm going to die in this storm. So they graduated from death fear, plain old fear, to great fear and they ask in amazement who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him 
Now, Jews, you understand, did not believe that anyone could command the weather of God except God himself. Even prophets couldn't do it. Other prophets had possessed the power to heal, but only God could control the weather. In fact, here's a nerd moment. Some of the rabbinic, rabbinic literature of the time, like 2 Maccabees, 2 Mac, Maccabees says this, that someone claims to control the weather, and they charge the prophet with blasphemy, and they kill the prophet. Jesus did not even call on a higher power to change the weather. God, make this storm stop. No, no, no. He did it himself with his own power. And Mark gives us a clear answer. Who is Jesus? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It has to be God. He can't just be a voice from God. He can't just be the prophet of God. He is God. Now, Mark gives us this story. It's one of three stories right in a row about amazing things that obey Jesus. Watch this. You have the story of Jesus healing disease and raising the dead right before this. The one after this in which Jesus commands demons and they obey him. And then the one where Jesus commands the weather. Here's Mark's point. The demons, disease, death, and the weather all obey Jesus. Why wouldn't you? Demons, death, weather, disease, all of it bows to Jesus' words. Why wouldn't you bow to his words? Three important implications from the story. Number one, there is a good and necessary kind of fear. There is a good and necessary kind of fear. As I mentioned at the beginning, a lot of people think the the concept of a God who should fear or be feared is outdated. But let let me just tell you, that's foolish. How could you understand anything about the power of Jesus and not feel fear? Seriously, I'm asking that question. How could you understand anything about the the power of Jesus and not feel fear? Whenever anybody glimpses the power of God in the Bible, they are overcome with fear. God's hello is don't fear. Because when I show up, you are in a cataleptic state, face down, thinking your life is over. My favorite example of this is John. Now, John was BFFs with Jesus, okay? Real BFFs, okay? I mean, real BFFs. In fact, a little bit pridefully, he says, I'm the one who Jesus loves, right? And post-resurrection and after post-ascension, John doesn't see Jesus for about another 30, about 50 years. And John's on the island of Patmos. He's been totally exiled. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John turns around and sees Jesus for the first time after he has been ascended after he has been fully, you know, called the earth his footstool. And John had been so close to Jesus in the time of his ministry that he leaned back on Jesus' chest during dinner, y'all. You remember that? Remember the Last Supper? He's leaning on Jesus. Now, I got some close guy friends. Not many of them do that to me. By not many of them, I mean none of them. If you ever see Pastor Chad with his head in my bosom right here, just know that we're good friends. Okay? You would think that'd be violation of bro code, not for John. Jesus is the most manliest man that's ever lived. He's the prototype of, of, of what it means to be a man. And Jesus speaks to John, and John turns around. I'm going to read it to you in John's own words. Now, now, you haven't seen a friend in 50 years. What do you do when you see? Big reunion, hug, high five, slap him on the booty. Tears, embrace. We used to slap all people on the booty back in the day in high school. Now you can't do that anymore. You're going to be under the jail. You slap somebody on the booty. We don't know what to do. 
We don't know whether to wear a mask, to say hello to somebody, get out of our house, go left, get in our... I mean... So, so he turns around, and the Bible says this. When I saw him, John said, I fell at his feet as though dead. Y'all, that's not a figure of speech. When he laid his eyes on the glorified Jesus, John literally thought he was going to die. I feel like, y'all, we have lost almost all concept of this in our churches. Can I just be honest just for a minute? Like, Jesus is our homeboy. Jesus is our pal. He's our shepherd snuggling with the lost sheep. And, and our worship services have lost this reality. We glibly sing these sentimental songs about wanting to be in his presence. Like, oh, we want to be in your presence. You realize that if Jesus did what we were asking one Sunday, and like he showed up on the stage, none of us would glibly sing our songs with our hands lifted. Okay, you understand that. We would fall on our faces thinking we are about to die. Dead in his presence. You see, maybe the reason so many people are so casual and so unmotivated in their obedience and so sluggish in their worship is because they have no true fear of Jesus. Friends, he rebuked the weather and it obeyed. He commanded disease and death and it obeyed. He spoke to demons and they yielded. He spoke to evil powers and they surrendered. Who are you to disobey him? Who am I to approach him with some type of pride? We have people come to church every weekend, listen to the, to the commands of Jesus and treat them so casually. Well, I know what he wants from me, but I'm not ready for it yet. Well, I'll get serious about obeying him later. Or, or I prefer my sexual preferences to his will. Or I'll do it later. Or, you know, I, I realize this season of life, I'll put it off. To, do you know the one to whom you're speaking? Who are you to defy the one who commands the winds and waves? I think more trembling and less sentimental swaying might do our worship gathering some good. I think if in our day the, the world around us was able to see the church with a healthy dose of the fear of God, it might lead to more knowledge and wisdom. Number two, fear does not exclude love. I know you've heard it said that most of your life. We quote scriptures like, in love, right, perfect love, there exists no fear. It casts it all out. But, but, but watch just for a moment. Whenever we talk about the fear of God, people object and they say, wait, we're not supposed to fear. He's the meek, tender, soft, brown-haired Savior that plays with children. Yes, but then you get pictures of like this in the Gospels that make his tenderness that much more amazing and that much more comforting. I've read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I've read them all. I'm starting to read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with my kids. I'm going to read it with my two oldest kids. And it's, it's, it's always amazing when you come to the section of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the four children first hear about Aslan. You remember this? The lion who represents Jesus. And he's coming back to Narnia, and he wants to meet the children. And when the children, when you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the four children, when they first hear his name, they feel this mixture, Lewis says, of mystery and loveliness. Did you hear that? Did you remember what I told you at the beginning of the sermon of, of, of desire and terror? The presence of greatness gives you both. And, and Susan, one of the oldest kids, the oldest kid, says, so wait, to, the, to Mr. Beaver. Says, so wait, who is this Aslan? He said, who is Aslan? Why, why he's the king. He's the great lion who is the creator of Narnia. And it's a rightful ruler. And Susan says, a lion? Uh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And when children hear that, what do they immediately think? 
well, Dad, is he safe or is he not? Well, he, he's not safe because he's a lion, but he's good. So, so he is safe. No, he's not really safe because he's able to be all-powerful, but, and yet that brings a lot of confusion to their mind. Is he safe? No, but he's good. So instead of using that analogy, let me, let me give you another analogy. Here's how I describe it. They say that at high-altitude storms, like when you're in Mount Everest, you know how people die on Mount Everest? The storms. That's how they die, right? And when you get on Mount Everest, they say in the sudden of, of five seconds, the temperature can drop right around 50 degrees. Five seconds. Five seconds, you go from one temperature to 50 degrees, for instance, below zero. And they say right there, when the gale force winds hit you so hard, it can sweep your equipment right off of the side of the mountain. Now imagine, here you are climbing Mount Everest, and you're caught in such a storm, accompanied by these gale force winds, and the wind effortlessly sweeps away your equipment and you're holding on for dear life. You hear the fierce howl of the winds. The cold penetrates the depth of you. You know that death is just a few moments away and you look up and you see a little hole in the side of the mountain that has a regress cave. And you make your way over to that regress cave and you find out, you notice that small opening leads to this cave where there's another traveler, another hiker, and they're preparing dinner and they have a huge fire that they're sitting next to being warm. Now immediately overwhelming peace fills your life. And as you sit by the fire, sheltered by the storm, you can look back out at the storm and you can marvel at its power. And although that storm may no longer be a threat to you, you still feel this sense of hushed awe and power. And that's the exact kind of fear the disciples have when they get around Jesus. Although they are no longer fearing for their own life, although they're now tucked away in the regress cave of God's salvation, they're able to look with awe and reverence at the power of God. That's why you see strange verses in the book of Psalms like this, folks. You look at Psalm uh, uh, verse uh, 130 says, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Wait, that don't make no sense. Forgiven so that we might fear, but isn't the point of forgiveness to take away our fear? If you've been forgiven, why would you fear anything else? No, when we see what Jesus had to go through to save us it makes us realize the holiness and the perfection of the God we have sinned against and God says listen fear comes in your life as you understand true love if you want to understand love you got to understand fear you got to understand the the magnitude and the awe of what God was and what God is the bloody cross was the terrible price for our sin. That was the price of disobedience. You hear people ask all the time, why the cross? Why was it so bloody? Because that's exactly what your sin deserved. That's exactly what my sin deserved. And when we look at the cross, y'all, it's the closest we'll come on earth to getting a glimpse of hell. But in that sacrifice, I also see that I'm safe within God's love. It's no longer a threat to me for there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. And what does that move me to, y'all? It moves me to worship. Focus in, church. I'm almost finished. True worship is a mixture of awe and intimacy. Or we could say intimacy that grows out of awe. All at the size of the power of God. Intimacy and realizing he's paid my full sin debt. Listen to me. One without the other is a deformed spirituality. See, some people in this room, you have the fear but no intimacy. And so you have no closeness or warmth or love in your relationship to God. Part of that is probably because you grew up in a home that might embody that kind of dad. Could be. 
And then other people, you have intimacy with, without all. So you're lazy or casual in your obedience, and there's all kinds of areas of compromise in your life, and you're uninspired in your worship, and you show up late to church, and you put your hands in your pocket, and you have no life-giving worship. Why? Because you have no awe. So a deformed spirituality is one that focuses on all or focuses on intimacy, but true life-giving worship is all mixed with intimacy. Number three, those who fear Jesus need fear nothing else. Those who fear Jesus need fear nothing else. When you realize how powerful Jesus is and that he's in the boat with you, (laughs) you won't be afraid of anything else. He's in the boat. In this story, after Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves, he also rebukes the disciples for being afraid. Y'all listen to me. If he's rebuking the disciples, that means they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. You say, what do you mean? It seems to me, can I just be honest? Their fears are legitimate. It seems to me they thought they were going to die. That's the time for fear. I feel like that anyways. And Jesus yet says, yeah, but when I'm in the boat with you, even that fear is irrational. <laughs> oh, God. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to give it to you like God gave it to me this week until it becomes alive in you. Even the fear of dying is irrational when Jesus is in your boat. It looks silly to God when Jesus is in your boat. Now, I feel like everybody in my family got some kind of irrational fear, including me. You know what my daughter's just right now? Bless her heart. She thinks we're going to leave her. My seven-year-old, she thinks we're going to leave her. It's been about three or four weeks of every day, hours, seriously. Where are you at in the house? Dad, last night she said, can you talk, or two nights ago, can you talk with me now when we're laying in bed? Yeah, I'm ready to talk, baby. Are you, when I wake up, are you going to be here? You know, it's awful for her. That, but that seems so irrational. Babe, let's go through the history of dad. Dad's never left. Dad won't ever leave. And anytime dad walks away from you, dad tells you where dad's going. But that's an irrational fear. We all have irrational fears. You know what Jesus is saying right here? With the presence of Jesus in your life, every fear is irrational. It's irrational. Jesus was in their boat. Did they really think God would let them sink? No. So if Jesus was going to make it to the other side and he was in their boat, y'all think he would make it, they would make it to the other side too? If he said, I've got an appointment on the other side, but they didn't understand, and because they didn't understand the power of Jesus over the storm, they feared in the storm. But had they feared Jesus and understood his power, they would not have been afraid of the storm. Y'all, I see it like this. You remember Jurassic Park, like the original version, 1995? You remember the final scene where all the raptors are in the dome about to kill the people? You know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden, when they're fearing for their life, what happens? Right there with all those raptors about to eat them up, all of a sudden, just as they despair, the T-Rex comes in and gobbles up the raptors. You remember that? I'm not talking about that new age Jurassic crap. I'm talking about true Jurassic part, okay? Like 1995, the, 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 the big T-Rex jumps in and, and you see, as you're watching the movie, like, whoa, the T-Rex is the real thing to be afraid of. But, but what if that T-Rex is on my side? Then I don't need to be afraid of all the raptors. Let me say it this way. If T-Rex is on my side, what can raptors do to me? Let me say it this way. If the T-Rex is for me, who can be against me? Let me say it this way. Jesus is the truer and better T-Rex. That's how you should watch Jurassic Park. So I don't need to fear raptors when the T-Rex is coming. 
Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 8? If God is for me, then who can be against me? For who shall bring charge against God's elect? He it is he who justifies, who is there to condemn. God himself justifies our life. Listen to me, church. Worry in our life comes from either one, forgetting the power of Jesus over the storm or doubting his commitment to me in the storm. Worry can only come from one of two places. And every time you worry... It comes from you forgetting the power of Jesus over the storm or doubting his commitment to you in the storm. So Mark tells the story because it depicts how we feel in life. We sense these storms brewing and it seems like Jesus is sleeping. Or maybe we look around and we see the size of the waves coming up over the sides of the boat and they seem overwhelming. And the water is filling up the boat and you feel like you're drowned, being drowned by bills or drowned by concerns in your marriage or drowned by problems with your kids or issues at work or too much you're trying to balance with school and schedules. And you ask, how am I going to make it? How will I make it? And you look to Jesus and say, do you even care? I thought you were supposed to take care of me. Let me tell you, remember three things. Come on, keys. When you feel that kind of fear, three things. Number one, realize your feelings of fear are natural. The disciples, which are the future leaders of the church, felt the same way. They're natural. But number two, don't listen to those feelings. Look at me, church. I, I don't look at me. I know they're natural, but don't listen to them. Don't listen to the feelings. You tell your feelings how they go. Oh, yeah, you're not responsible for the passive feelings that come and go, but you determine what you communicate to them. You determine how you perceive them. You determine in that moment. I'm going to put my eyes on Jesus and his commitment to me. Look at me, church. Salvation does not come by getting on top of your circumstances. Salvation comes from believing God's promises. So stop looking at the circumstances. You won't get saved because you somehow get on top of them. That's not how you get saved. You get saved by believing God's promise. So that the enemy's temptation is to constantly get me so preoccupied. Because he knows even if I get over them, I'm not saved. Even if I get on top of them, I'm not free. Because that's not where salvation comes. Salvation comes by believing the promises of God. It's but by faith and trust in Jesus. And thirdly, when you feel like you're drowning, can I tell the church today it's okay to wake Jesus up? Wake him up, man. Wake him up. Beat the door of heaven down. Shake him left. Shake him right. Shake him up. Shake him down. Wake Jesus up. Do whatever you got to do. He intentionally put you in the storm, and he took a pillow with him because he's going he's gonna to see how long you have to go before you wake him up. He's going to understand. Listen, you, you need to hear me, church. You need to hear me. He puts us intentionally in storms. And you say, well, Jesus loves us. Why in the world didn't he just keep me from the storm? Well, that's a great question. Because verse 35 says he intentionally, it wasn't, they, they got themselves in a bad situation with their decisions. It was his decision to make them get into the storm. Why did he knowingly send them into the storm? Why does he knowingly send you into the storm? Let me tell you why. Maybe you've seen other people celebrating. Oh, God healed someone of cancer. But you wonder, why in the world did they have cancer to begin with? Here's why. There's something more important than God keeping you from all storms. And that is God teaching you his faithfulness in the storm. And there are certain things about God you can 
can only learn in the storm. So God sends you in the storm. Why? Because the storms are his laboratory, laboratory in which he can teach you about himself. And you hear me, church, the knowledge of God is the greatest treasure on the planet. And then that means, listen, that if you got knowledge of God, but you don't have a storm-free life, that means the knowledge of God is greater than your storm-free existence. So if the storm makes you get more knowledge of God, you better bet your bottom dollar God's going to make you go into a storm. What's more precious than knowledge of the Creator? Nothing. See, everybody wants to see a miracle in their life, but nobody wants to be in a position where they need one. But until God puts you in a place where His sustaining power is needed, you'll never experience it. Y'all, after long PhD study, meticulous study, original language, of the New Testament I have come to a brilliant conclusion you ready every miracle in the Bible started with a problem 13 years of schooling right there every miracle started with an issue so that's good news you got some problems you're a candidate for a miracle today if you don't got any problems in just a minute I'm going to invite you forward we'll lay hands on you and ask God to give you lots of problems this week Listen to me, church. In a storm, Jesus will always do one of two things. He'll show off his power by delivering you from the storm, or he'll show off his power by his ability to keep you in the storm. He'll always do one of two things. One time, sometimes he'll look at the storm and say, peace, be still. And other times, I don't like these times, he'll put his back to the storm and he'll look at you and say, you, peace, be still. See? But, but he's going to do one of two things. He's going to look at the storm and say, peace, be still. Or he's going to put his back between you and the storm and say, I'm going to sustain you through this storm. He'll do one of two things. You bet your bottom dollar, Jesus will do what he says he'll do. See, Jesus is the prince of peace. So peace is not a set of circumstances. Peace is a person. Therefore, peace becomes dictated by the presence of the prince of it. I am your peace. Which leads me to the last, come on band, and most important insight into the story. I'm done. This shows us he'll, we never have to doubt his commitment to us. Because some of you may be saying, well, I don't feel like a good Christian. How do I know God's going to care for me like this? Well, I told you this story reminds us of another prophet who had an incident with the sea. You know what his name was? Jonah. Both Jesus and Jonah were prophets heading towards the Gentiles, wasn't he? He's going to the Gentiles. Jonah's going to the Gentiles. The Sea of Galilee, by the way, was the body of water that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. Both Jew, Jesus and Jonah slept through the storm. Both Jesus and Jonah were woken up from the storm. They're woken up sleeping. Both were woken by sea scared sailors or mariners who understood and said, don't you care? If you go read Jonah 1 and you read Mark 4, the, the same text that John, Jonah 1 says, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm, is what Mark borrows and says, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. In other words, he's trying to get you to see this is the same story as Jonah. But here's where it gets really interesting. Can I tell you? There are some differences. Jonah calmed the storm by plunging himself into it. But Jesus calmed the storm by 
speaking to it. Why, Craig? Because this was not the place for Jesus to plunge himself into the sea. You see, the sea throughout the Bible is God's wrath. In fact, if you read Revelation, when evil empires rise, they rise where? Out of the sea, because that is God's wrath. In the new heaven, the Bible says in Revelation, there'll be no more sea. That doesn't mean there's no more beaches in heaven, although I would be okay with that. It means that there is no more evil in heaven. There's no more wickedness in heaven. And at the cross, Jesus would plunge himself into the sea of God's wrath. He wouldn't do it on the boat that day, but he would do it on the cross that day, and he would be swallowed up by death for three days, just like Jonah was swallowed up by a whale for three days. The wrath of God was terrible. It was like a raging sea, and greater than we could ever comprehend. It would have destroyed us forever, but Jesus faced the terror, and he silenced the terror in love. And seeing that, seeing that rightful terror, what it does is it causes me to worship God in all and intimacy. You show me a worshiper and I'll show you somebody who understands what they've been set free from. You show me a lax worshiper, I'll show you somebody who does not understand the grace of Almighty God. Isn't that what Jesus told the Pharisees? A woman comes in, breaks oil on his body, breaks oil on his feet. It was perfume paid for by prostitution and everyone around her, the Pharisees looked at her and says, why is she wasting it? Don't you understand, folks? We've got to start reading the Bible like we are the powerful people. We always want to be the woman We're the Pharisees who are the most affluent in our culture. We read as American Westerners like we're always the disenfranchised. No, we're the powerful person in all of these stories. And they look at him and say, hey, why why is she wasting? And what does he say? For whoever has been forgiven much, you love much. You love much. You love much. He's united himself to you in the boat. And because he's in the boat with you, even when you mess up, he won't let it sink. That's what he said. Indeed, he who watches over you, Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. My question for you is who really got woke? When Jesus was going into his sea, Garden of Gethsemane, they slept on him, not he on them. Why? He stayed awake so that you can sleep in your storm. And you can have authority over whatever it is that you're going through because if he plunged himself into the sea of wrath and overcame death, held in the grave. Surely he'll take care of you in your storm today. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.